most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we desperately need your word in order to persevere in our faith. But there are many things impeding our vision to see your word rightly. And we pray that you would remove the veil from our eyes as your word is unfolded to us. We also pray to you on behalf of those who are captive to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil. We know that without your grace, we too would be in darkness and enslaved. And so we pray for those who cannot see the truth, blinded by the lies of the evil one, that you might shine the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, that they might see you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this little book of Jude has been called the most neglected book in the New Testament. It's the book that is tucked away between the letters of John and the letter to Revelation, and therefore it is easy to miss and neglect. But to neglect this book is to forget one of the church's greatest calling, to contend for the faith. Jude was aiming what every faithful pastor wants to do for the congregation that he serves in, to encourage them in the faith, to strengthen Christians. Now, while Jude's tone is polemical, as a large portion of the scripture is dedicated to rebuking false teachers and their ungodly characteristics, the main object of his letter is not to vilify the apostates and false teachers outside of the true church, but to solidify the faith of authentic, spirit-filled believers inside the church. That was Jude's burden in this letter, to call the church to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because false teachers have crept in the church and have been spreading their poisonous teaching amongst them. And we left off last Lord's Day with the final characteristics of these apostates who were out to divide the church, who were worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit, controlled by the spirit of the age. And in other words, the church to which Jude was writing to was facing real challenges. There were real problems and real difficulties that Jude and his church were facing. And so he warns the church to remember the words spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that in these last days there will be scoffers and mockers that ridicule the Gospels. Now these last days that the apostles spoke of are the days that we are living in today. I was reminded of this recently when an old book was republished for its 100th year anniversary. In 1923, J. Gresham Machen wrote his classic work, Christianity and Liberalism. Now, by liberalism, Machen was not thinking of political liberalism of our day, but of the theological liberalism which grew up in German soil and was blossoming and spreading in the mainline denominations of America in the early part of the 20th century. And this theological liberalism Machen was sounding the alarm on was how the Enlightenment, the age of reason, which viewed reason and empirical evidence 
as the primary way to obtain evidence and objective truth, it was applying that to theology. And thus what it did to the church was to question everything and hold in suspicion what was orthodox in their faith and establish new ways of thinking of religion, not based in the faith in the Word of God, but solely on human reason deducted from empirical and scientific data. In essence, theological liberalism was seeking to find the truth apart from faith in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And this, beloved, has not changed today. Theological liberalism, then in Machen's world and now in ours, is enamored by the spirit of the age, by what is new, by what is innovated, by what the world is doing. It is driven by what man must do, what man must attain, and what man must determine. Not what God has done, and not what God has accomplished, and not what God has said in His Word. And so at its core, theological liberalism possesses a deep craving to be relevant to the culture, to be praised and to be adored by the world and to be respected amongst the intellectual elites. Now, is that not the very plague of the contemporary church today? A deep craving to be relevant to the culture, adored by the world. And because of the spirit of the age has been infecting the church, she has lost her position as a city set on a hill as a watchman on a tower, as a beacon of light in dark places, as soldiers enlisted in Christ's army for truth. This is why we must contend for the faith. Now, as Pastor Eric mentioned in the first sermon, in expositing the text, the word contend carries the idea of athletes who in an effort to win, they find themselves intensely struggling and competing and even fighting with all their might. As one lexicon put it, contend means effort expended in a noble cause. Now listen, you never fight the Lord's battles from a rocking chair or a soft bed. This is what Jude is talking about. Christ is calling the church today to zealously fight, to guard against doctrinal truth, against all error and false teaching. And this requires all the available energies we have. The faith which was once delivered for all the saints is worth contending for. Now, when it comes in this letter to articulate precisely what contending look like, looks like, Jude puts forward a very concise and yet a very trenchant manual for how the church is to live in the face of false teaching. The first strategy he gave was to remember. Remember the words of the apostles and therefore do not be surprised at false teachers and scoffers. Don't be surprised. He said, don't be derailed and don't be discouraged. Expect false teachers to happen. Remember that the apostles predicted this will happen. So keep on going. And so for the rest of our time, we'll continue his pastoral charge on how to contend for the faith in the midst of the dangers and the seduction of false teaching by noting three strategies. And I'm going to give you all three in the beginning. The first is the central directive to contend for the faith. The second is the duty towards those being led astray from the faith. And the third is the doxology that we need to anchor our faith. Let's look at the first, the central directive to contend for the faith. You'll find it in verse 21. And it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
This was the primary thing in, in the mind of Jude. It is the only imperative in verses 20 to 21 with a cluster of participles surrounding it, which explains how they are to keep themselves in God's love. Building yourselves up, praying the Holy Spirit, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all means in keeping the central command to keep yourselves in the love of God. This is the key element to the antidote to apostasy and to contend for the faith. What does it mean to keep ourselves in the love of God? Now, first of all, you need to be possessed by the love of God. You see, you cannot keep what you have never possessed. Now, I think when Jude is saying we need to keep ourselves in the love of God, he's speaking of the love that God has for us, not primarily the love we are to have for him, although it includes that. This is in keeping with verse 1. Introduces the church as those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You see, we are chiefly and beloved by our heavenly Father. Now, to understand and appreciate what that means, we need to understand that our heavenly Father loves us just as He loves His own Son. Will you turn to John 17, 23? John 17, 23, I find this verse to be astounding in helping us understand that we are loved just as the Father loves the Son. Jesus prays, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Did you hear that? The Father loves us, Jesus says, even as you love me. The word even as means to the same degree that. And so we are told that God loves us to the same degree that he loves his own son. The very same love with which the God the Father loves his own begotten son, he loves us. Not the same kind of love, not simply a strain of the Father's love, but the same love. We are loved by the Father in just the same way and in just the same intensity with the same tenderness which wish the Father loves the Son. God's love was the cause of our election, and now Jude exhorts us to stay within this state of grace. Jude is saying to keep ourselves consciously in God's love, just as a doctor tells his patient to keep himself in the sunshine. You know, the flowers teach us this as well, for when the sun shines upon them, they open themselves, and they turn their faces towards its light. Keep yourselves in the love of God is another way of saying, sun yourselves in it all the day. That means we need to keep anything from clouding our consciousness of His love. Avoid anything that would dampen our consciousness of God's love for us. Put everything aside that would hinder us from knowing that He loves you. To keep yourselves in the love of God is what grammarians call a dative of sphere. There is a sphere in which the believer is to keep themselves in. The whole expression means do not stray outside the love of God. You are to be in God's love. You are to continue in it. Keep yourselves in it. Grow conscious of it. Your heavenly father loves you. So don't be like the prodigal going away from that love or forgetting it, or exchanging it. He says, enjoy it and be warmed by it. There are too many 
Christians who stray outside the love of God and they forget the reality that they are the objects of the love of the Heavenly Father. They don't live in the sunshine of God's love and they go out and say they start doubting and they start falling away. We need to learn, Jude says, to fix our minds on it, to have a sense of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Jude says to be conscious of being beloved by God is one of the greatest protections that a believer can possess. There is no greater stability than that. That is the central directive. But you say, can you unpack that some more? I want to I be more conscious of God's love for me. I desire this stability. I do not want to stray outside of his love. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, Jude tells us there are three ways to do this. There are three participle clauses that subordinate to this main command to keep ourselves in the love of God. And by the way, Jude, he loves grouping things in threes. He has a fondness for expressing his point in threes. For example, verse 1, called, love, kept. Verse 2, mercy, peace, love. Verse 4, designated, perverting, denying. We saw this in the characteristics of false teachers. Verse 19, cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit. You'll find this structure of threes throughout this whole letter. You can say that Jude is the Steph Curry of the New Testament writers. And so here, the central command to keep ourselves in the love of God, he gives three looks by which we are to do so. The first is the inward look. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Building up is a construction metaphor. It carries a sense of being built upon an existing foundation. And the existing foundation, Jude says, is our most holy faith. And when he's talking about faith, he's not talking about our subjective faith. I have faith. No, he's talking about the faith, the objective faith. It's not faith in, but faith that. It's not simply faith in Jesus, but faith that certain truths about Jesus and the gospel. It is the faith that is introduced in the letter once for all delivered to the saints. In Jude, the Christian faith is already in existence as a settled and final body of saving truths. Once for all tells us that we are not free to change it as if faith were somehow still evolving and changing to palatable to the culture. According to Jude, the faith is not subject to change. Jude furthermore describes the faith as most holy. Therefore, the faith handed down to the saints is exceedingly sacred. The faith is not only separate and sacred because it comes from a holy God, but it is also able to produce holiness in those who ground their lives upon it. We then must seek to build our most holy faith with two hands. The hand of sound doctrine and the word, as well as the hand of a sanctified life. You see, our doctrine must shape our life, and our life must adorn our doctrine. I mean, isn't this the true test of sound doctrine? Not simply that our heads are getting big with knowledge, but that our hearts are enlarged with a passion for holiness. The better you grasp the riches of sound doctrine, the better you will walk in him since you have been rooted and built up in him now to build on the most holy faith is the responsibility of every member of Christ's church notice Jude says building yourselves up now well we understand that growth can only happen by the divine power of his spirit and the word 
It is the responsibility for each believer to work out his own salvation. The first way then to keep ourselves in the love of God is to get ourselves in the word of God. It is to care deeply about doctrine, to read and to study the scriptures, to build our life in the faith, to be rooted in the truth. Keep yourselves in the love of God by mastering the book and letting the book master us. Now, I'm afraid some of us have cooled down in our efforts to build on the most holy faith. We think we have learned enough, know enough, are holy enough, but fail to realize that yesterday's bread cannot feed us today. We will not be able to keep and build upon what we have received if we do not labor and advance and increase in it just as a house begun to be built, starts to decay and rot if we do not go on and build upon it. You and I must continue building upon what we have learned by daily meditating on the word of God. This will help you always keep in view of the love of God that he has for us. That secondly, Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God by an upward look, praying in the Holy Spirit. That is to enter into a heart of what it means to trust in God, to depend upwards in our dependence upon him. If you've noticed, Judas placing the position of believers in sharp contrast to the false teachers. Remember the apostates, there were those in verse 19 who were described as devoid of the spirit. But true believers are those who are in possession of the Holy Spirit and communion with God through the spirit's power. You know, our Puritan forefathers were keenly sensitive to their dependence on the Holy Spirit, both in their personal lives and, their, and for their ministry. As Thomas Watson once wrote, ministers knock at the, at, at the door of men's hearts, but the Spirit comes with a key and opens the door. And this realization of the Spirit's power made these Puritans great prayer warriors with God, men who habitually prayed in and by the Holy Spirit. In fact, John Bunyan perhaps wrote the most extensive treatise on prayer in the Holy Spirit. And he wrote, when the Spirit gets into the heart, then there is prayer indeed and not until then. It was Bunyan's conviction that we cannot pray without the Holy Spirit. We can put words into prayer, but it is the Spirit who puts the affections and he's the one that stirs up our hearts. Without the Holy Spirit, we are merely babbling with ourselves and so think of passages like Zechariah 12 10 where he speaks of the spirit coming and the spirit will be one that comes with grace and supplication think of Romans 8 26 27 where Paul portrays the Holy Spirit as prompting and purifying and directing our prayers the spirit takes our feeble prayers and perfects them and presents them to God the Father as Paul tells the church the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. The Spirit does this, does this in us. He gives the affection in us. Praying in the Holy Spirit then is the opposite of cold and heartless and formal prayers. Praying in the Holy Spirit is opposite of those prayers concerned about how eloquent you sound. Praying in the Holy Spirit is opposite of vain repetitions, merely uttering, wor uttering words. There are times when we pray in these ways, when we're mouthing words, but not really praying, right? When we are going through the motions, but
but there is no heart, no earnestness in them. Jude says, no, that is not the way to pray. Pray in the Holy Spirit. There is no other way to pray. Praying in the Holy Spirit then means pouring out your heart with earnestness and with freedom that is indwelt and filled by the Holy Spirit, not so that others may praise you for your eloquence, not looking to yourself, but looking only to God, the Holy Spirit, to help you. Oh, we desperately need to pray in the Spirit. We need to lay hold on God to use those expressive, dramatic words from the prophet Isaiah And you will never lay hold of God unless you are praying in the Spirit. And how does that keep you in the love of God? How does that help you not be easily led astray? Because God has met you in prayer. Because you have taken hold of God. And so I ask you at this point, what place does prayer have in your life? How essential is prayer in your life? You will not be led easily astray when you have a healthy, regular prayer life. It was Matthew Henry who once said that those who live without prayer live without God in this world. And so, friend, you show me a Christian who is prayerless, and I'll show you a Christian who is in danger, unprotected, unsafe, and exposed to false teaching. Oh, beloved, how simple, how simple the strategy To keep ourselves in the love of God that Jude sets right here in word and prayer. If only people would understand the spirit that is given, the means of grace provided in word and prayer. How much more would our lives be stabilized? But we neglect getting into the word and prayer because our flesh is stubborn, self-sufficient. And we follow the spirit of the age and we believe that something else will be the solution to our problems. Now, you know, in one sense, our flesh can be a guide to what is truly important in the Christian life. Because that which the flesh opposes is that which is most essential. And what does our flesh oppose more than reading the Bible and prayer? But you knew what he was talking about. That power comes from the Holy Spirit when we are in the word and prayer and thirdly we keep ourselves in the love of god not only by an outward look not only by an upward look but also we need to keep a forward look look at verse 21 waiting anxiously for the mercy of our lord jesus christ to eternal life jude is describing the forward expectation of awaiting for someone or something now jude says you need to be eagerly expecting and looking forward to the return of christ But did you notice the rather unique way that Jude puts it? He says, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he put it like that? Looking forward to the mercy. Well, in light of his discussion on the judgment upon the ungodly and how the Lord comes to execute judgment upon all, the child of God knows that what he needs most from Christ is mercy when he returns. The tender mercy of God will be the opposite of what the apostate and the false teacher will receive on the coming day. You see, the one thing that the sinner knows what he really needs when Christ returns is that Christ will be as merciful to him then on that coming day 
as he was when he died for us on the cross. That is what transforms the return of Christ that causes terror to something the believer can look forward to and expect and to be of great comfort and hope. And what what does it do to the life of the believer who has this forward look, who does not set their hopes on this world, but sets upon Christ? Right? It relieves us from putting all our hopes in this world. This needs to be emphasized in our day because God's people today slip into placing all our hopes on the things of this world. Whether that be a number of things like job security, a husband or a wife, a sense of accomplishment. It's almost as if when our hope is in this world, we are looking for a perfect life in this world. But listen, the Christian's hope and expectations are not upon this world. Why? Because we are looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. Oh, Christian, if we were to adopt this forward look and eagerly expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, how can we continue to that which belongs in the realm of sin? Wouldn't we withdraw our hearts more and more from present things? Wouldn't our conversations be more heavenly minded? If we had this forward look and believe we were going to see Jesus face to face, wouldn't we begin preparing for that now? Wouldn't we be eager, more eager to belong in the realm of the love of God? These then are the commitments we need to make to keep ourselves in the love of God. And beloved, let it be observed here that we will only be carried forward with our commitments in the strength of the triune God. If you look very closely, there is a carefully formulated reference to the Trinity. Keep yourselves in the love of God that is God the Father. Pray in the Holy Spirit, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We go in the strength of our triune God. He is the one who offers the best antidote against the lures of the apostate. Well, now having given us the central directive to deal with ourselves, Jude then tells us, the duty toward those who are being led astray from the faith. You see, Jude wants us not only to be occupied with our own security and growth, but he also sees the important responsibility placed on us to stretch our saving hands toward those who are affected by the apostates. And as Jude loves things in threes, he says there are three categories of people that you have a duty to reach out to. The first are those who need mercy. It says, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Now, with the mercy the believer expects to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ, Jude now says, extend that mercy towards those in their weakness who have fallen into the snare of the heretics. The church is filled with people with doubts, doubts about the Bible, doubts about the Christian faith. They ask questions like, how can I be sure that the Bible is true? How do I know that Jesus really loves me? How can I be certain that I am a Christian? If there are so many interpretations in the Bible, How do we know which one is true and so on? And he says to those who doubt, don't shun them, Jude says, because they're doubting or questioning. Don't be harsh with them. Don't think that behind every question is a budding heretic is ready to come out. To such people, he says, have mercy on them. They may have come from different church backgrounds with false teachers who have influenced them and they're confused as to what is true and false. Have compassion on them. You know, this is something that certain Christians need to hear because there are those who are very, very adept 
to smelling heresy and heretics and not nearly as adept to applying the gospel to their lives. I meet people like that pretty regularly. We call them heresy hunters. They have this sharp, keen sense of smell to false teaching, but they are completely insensitive in how to handle those who are being led astray by false teaching. And so they say, we have no time for them. We have judged them and written them off. There is no mercy in our hearts. Jude is telling us, just as you receive the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, so become the mercy of God to others. But secondly, there are those conditioned who's demand, who demands urgent and aggressive action. In verse 23, he says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Now, their condition is more critical and urgent than those who doubt. And so he calls them to snatch them from the fire. Now, the word that Jude uses to snatch means to take something forcefully. It implies urgency. Speed is of the essence. Now, Jude doesn't exactly spell out those who need this forceful and swift action, but in light of the context of Jude, these could be those who are under the sway of the heretic's teaching or the false teacher's way of living. Now, back in verse 7, Jude speaks of the fire. That is the final judgment of hell. And when Jude here says, snatch them out of the fire, he doesn't mean that they're already in the fire, but that they are on the brink of hell and can be snatched before they fall into it. Now, this reminds me of uh, my preaching professor who was known to be a fiery preacher on the topic of hell. And he said, you know, Jesus doesn't send anyone to hell. If you end up going to hell, it's because you want to go to hell. But not that Jesus sent you there. Jesus didn't send anybody to hell. If you go to hell, you choose to go to hell. And he illustrated this by saying that it's like a mother who told her son who wanted to go out and to the streets at night and be a gangbanger and be involved with gangs. And, and she said, no, son, you're not going out. You're not going out. And he said, mother, move aside. I'm going out. And so she said, I'm not moving. You're not going out. I'm standing by the door. And if you're going to go out, you need to go over my body. And with that, he knocked her over and stepped her over her and went down to the streets. And then the preacher said in much the same way, Jesus Christ is at the door of hell. He's at the door of hell bleeding. He's bled for you. And he said, you're not going to hell unless you step over me. You're going to step over me if you're going to hell. And you, sinner, if you're going to hell, you must step over the blood of Christ and over the body that was bled for you, and then you will go to hell. And friend, there may be some of you here who are on the verge of going to hell by the way you're living. But listen, the very blood of Christ that you are stepping over is the very blood that can save your soul. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you and save you. So I plead with you, friend, to repent. That means that as you are marching towards hell, turn 180 degrees. Forsake your sin and turn to Jesus Christ and to the mercy that he offers by the blood that he has shed for you on the cross. And for sinners like you, do not take this lightly. Beloved, there are times when we need to be forceful and urgent in our plea like this. When was the last time we spoke with a loved one, a friend we know is on the verge of hell, and spoke to them with this 
kind of urgency to snatch them out of the fire. If the love of Christ has gripped your soul, then you'll desire to snatch them out of the fire. But there's a third category of people in whom we are to reach to. Those who, whose pollution requires personal caution. Jude says, on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, in this third category, Jude describes the worst case condition. The hardened sinner. Those who have turned their backs on the faith. Completely gripped by sinful pleasures. Who will not even listen to your best attempts to share the gospel. How does Jude tell us to deal with them? We are to show mercy. Be merciful to the sinner. But listen, he says. Show mercy with fear. Jude is confronting two errors here. On the one hand, he challenges the error of those who are condemning rather than compassionate, disdainful of people with the vice of an obvious sin, rather being tender-hearted. He says, show them mercy, he says. But on the other hand, he challenges the error of those who use compassion for the lost without hating the sin and the lifestyle that they've chosen. While some are very adept to smelling heresy and insensitive in the way we deal with those who are racked with doubt, there are others who want to be so culturally sensitive, but all fear of sin is gone from our hearts, and then we end up falling for the very sin we intended to rescue them from. The closer you get to the fire, the easier it is to get burned. And so Jude says, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, this translation really doesn't do justice to the meaning here because the garment wasn't simply the clothes we wear on the outside, like our jeans or our coats, but it referred to the inner tunic, the inner garment worn next to the skin. So allow me then to give you a more literal rendering of this phrase. Have mercy with fear hating even the undergarments stained by the flesh. That's the situation of these people. You don't see the stain because you don't see their undergarments. You see their nicely pressed suits. You see their nice dry cleaned and steamed dresses. Their nice houses, well decorated. But their undergarments are reeking by the in, in foulness of the soul that is in bondage to the flesh. Have mercy on them with fear, Jude says. He says, engage with those hardened by sin with a deep feeling of compassion for them. But you must be ever careful not to be brought under the power of the deadly contamination of their sin. And beloved, if we've seen enough of the foul smell of our undergarments of sin, we will know how to show mercy with fear. Well, then and finally, we end this letter of Jude with the doxology we need to anchor our faith. A, a doxology is a word of blessing or praise towards God. You would note that there's a slight difference between doxology and a benediction. All of our services at Pillar end with the benediction. A benediction goes in this direction from God to you, right? God blesses you in a benediction, but you bless God in a doxology. But the interesting thing about a doxology is that even as we praise God, we are reminded of his benediction to us. 
This doxology, therefore, becomes a call to faith and an anchor to our faith. The hope that is found in the, in the doxology is astounding in the light of the grave situation that Jude faced as he tried, as he tried to fortify the faith of the congregation. Jude has spent much time here uh, giving urgent warnings. He has carefully assembled arguments, compelling arguments against false teachers. And in light of this, he's been calling you to responsibility, to watchfulness, to vigilance, to contend for the faith. He's exhorted you to engage in compassionate and aggressive rescue operation towards those who are being seduced by the heretics. Yet in the end, Jude tells us to turn your eyes to God. And he says that all the dangers and the needs and the duties in this epistle find their ultimate solution in Him who is able. Oh, meditate upon this title. Him who is able. And what security comes upon the one who is able. Beloved, the ability of, our, of God is worth knowing and pursuing. The scriptures are filled with this. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Think of all the various things that God is able to do. He is able to save, Hebrews 7.25. He is able to establish, Romans 16.25. He is able to help and assist, Hebrews 2.18. And what is God able to do here in Jude? He is able to keep you from stumbling. Now, I, I, I think I, I want to be very pastorally sensitive here because I know there's a lot of Christians who are, have such tender, delicate conscience that nearly every time they live in sin or fall into sin, they live in dread that this time they have lost their favor of God. And these are people who need to hear this truth because it's not that they have forsaken the gospel. And it's not that they have turned their backs on Jesus Christ, but in their fight against sin, they have fallen short once again to the glory of God. They've yielded to temptation, and so they're very quick to question their salvation. And so this is what you need to hear. Our Father keeps His children eternally. I like how one Puritan, John Flavel, explained it. As God did not first choose you because you were so high, so He will not forsake you because you are now low. So if you are here and a tender-hearted Christian, you need to hear this truth that you are as secure as God is strong and able. Beloved, there is no power in the universe that is greater than our God, and nor is there any force that could ever break in His loving grip of His hand upon us. And as a result, we can rest in Him and we can go out in faith and contend for the faith. You know, there was a story told about a man who was deeply moved by the death of a friend who spoke to the presiding pastor at the graveside service. And thoughts of the reality of his own death and the life thereafterwards consumed him. And the man expressed his desire to become a Christian, but he added, there's just one thing that makes me hesitate, pastor. I'm afraid I won't be able to hold out. I work with a pretty tough group. They're hardly what you would call religious. I don't think there's a real Christian in the bunch. And I know they won't take, they take kindly to me being there. And then the pastor stooped down. And he picked one of the flowers adorning the grave. And he commented, take a look at this flower. It grew right in the mud and the slime and the decay of the earth. But yet see how clean and spotless it is. And he says that's because God kept it. And he can keep you too. 
And so we treasure these words of Jude, that this is our only hope, this is our only certainty and safety in God alone, who is able to keep us and present us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly and acknowledge our tendency towards error and apathy. We confess that we are easily swayed by the cunning schemes of the evil one and we often fall into his snares. We stray away from your love and we often uh, close our hearts to those who are affected and seduced by the false teachers. We ask for grace to keep us in the love of God. Grant to us the wisdom and discernment to distinguish between truth and error. Oh Lord, give us a more compassionate heart to minister to those who are lured by the seduction of false teaching. And we ask ultimately, Lord, that in all of our efforts to keep ourselves in the love of God, that we will turn our eyes to you, who is able to keep us from stumbling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.